Hello everyone, welcome to the Spiritual Nomad Podcast. I'm thrilled to have my friend Jason Page on the show for a conversation about his story. You know, Jason has a lot of experience uh, in the church world, both good and indifferent. You know, he's got a lot of things to say, a lot of cool things uh, that he's going to share with us. Uh, he shares with us about his you know, rise to church planting here in San Diego and ultimately some things that accompanied that and uh, ultimately leading him to this place of restoration in his life. So Jason, he now works um, doing videography. I know he directs some music videos, lots of cool stuff like that. He also has an anti-human trafficking nonprofit, uh, and he's actually working on his first book uh, that's set to be released late spring. So uh, as always, I'll include all of those links in the description. And I just want to thank you for joining us, and uh, we would love to hear from you, you know, via email, comment, uh, rating would be awesome. And now look, I have to preface very quickly. We recorded this conversation uh, sitting outside uh, this amazing cafe on Oceanside. And uh, so though it may be noisy at times, particularly at the beginning, uh, bear with us. It continues to get more clear as well uh, as some people kind of move away from us. So just think, it's like you're sitting at the table right with us near the beach with a cold brew in your hand. It's real, it's raw, uh, it's relaxing. You know, it's all of those things as life should be, right? So uh, now here is the conversation I have with my good friend, Jason Page. Here with my friend, Jason Page, the famous Jason Page that if you Google his name, things just fly up everywhere. <laughs> it doesn't come up at all. That's <laughs> no. <laughs> so Jason is uh, popular in my heart, and so that's all that matters. But no, he really is a popular guy and, and uh, really cool story, really awesome stuff. So I met you uh, a few months ago. Uh, we started hanging out over at Generation Church with yeah. a, a mutual friend in the mornings. So Monday mornings we get up nice and early, although I haven't been for three weeks. It's I think, okay. You're you're allowed to not show up for a while. I think Jason's <laughs> upset, or uh, Jared's upset with me. You know, he's been giving me the cold shoulder at bike night. So, oh, has you he? Know, whatever. It's all good. So, uh, so anyway, uh, Jason's story is one that connected. I think me and you, whenever we hung out, I just immediately felt like this is a guy that I get that I understand. I just felt like there was a a vibe there um, between us. You know, sure. there was just like a. I just felt like you, you just look at some people and you talk to them for like five minutes and you're like, this is a friend. You know? Totally. And so that, that was you for me and uh, maybe likewise. I'm not cool. sure. Yeah, totally. So. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's encouraging to hear. Yeah. And so we're at the Succulent Cafe here in Oceanside. And so uh, if it's got some other noise around, you know, it's just like you guys are sitting here on this beautiful succulent patio here with us. <laughs> so it's amazing. Got some drinks hanging out. Good time. So, so Jason, I know that you have a long history uh, with church you have a long history um, just with people I think too uh, that are trying to figure out their faith trying to figure out what to do um, with maybe the God idea that's been placed on them or maybe that they have an innate sense and so I think that uh, a thing that attracted me about you is just understanding how to um, innovatively bring people into the mission of God I think that's one of the is every time that we hang out um, I just feel like our conversations always get back to figuring out like, hey, this is how we embraced people. This is how we loved people. This is how we gave them a purpose and a reason together. And uh, so I just really appreciate that um, just about you. And so I just want to talk just a little bit about kind of where you got to this spot now in your life with a lot of things that you're doing and um, just kind of the history of that and where that whole idea of inclusion and then leading us to the main theme of restoration, how that really came to be. Uh, I think that's um, a big part of all that you do in seeing restoration in the lives of people as well, your own story of yeah. restoration and kind of where that was. So, I mean, you didn't, did, and you don't seem like you grew up in church, right? You, no. You didn't grow up in church. Well, I mean, when you say grow up in church, I mean, what does that really mean? It's right. not, I wasn't, I have a very definitive moment um, that I remember as a kid where I committed my life to Christ. Um, and so, you know, I think that when you say grow up in church, it's not like my, my parents were Christians. They went to the same church my whole life. It's not like I was dedicated or baptized Mm -hmm. or, you know, that kind of stuff in a a church, um, you know, since I was born, um, I was introduced to Jesus when I was like eight years old. 
Okay. And it just felt like a fairy tale, <laughs> you know. Um, my life up to that point had been pretty tumultuous. My mom was really young when she had me, and so um, it was really just her and I. And, you know, the the exposure that I got from, she started dating a guy, and then they um, ended up getting married. And he was a Christian. And so, mm. um, but just going to church, you know, when I was younger, I, you know, I never really... I don't know, you go to Sunday school and you check out. You don't even pay attention, you know? And I ditched most of the time anyways. Right. I had, you know, a youth group experience when I was in junior high, and but it was more about games and fun and that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then the summer before my freshman year of high school is where, you know, I had this um, unbelievable, real and authentic experience with God. And... Mm it just changed the course of my whole life from that moment. Hmm. Uh, they, there was a lady who, it's a real quick part of my story. Yeah. Uh, there was a lady who was on staff with the high school ministry of Campus Crusade who volunteered at the church that my parents went to. And so she invited me in one of our moves um, in one of the summers before we were moving to a different place in the city. She invited me to go to some conference up at Biola. And... I didn't have any friends. It was the summertime. I was thinking, we're going to go to L.A. She was paying for it. Gonna be free food, you know. Um, I, I knew there were going to be girls, so I definitely <laughs> wanted to do that. So I went, and I just had this, um, you know, you go through these classes, and they would do these different evangelistic-type things where you have to go talk to people about Jesus on the beach and <laughs> just weird stuff. And you Did just you kinda, have a tally for how many people you had to get saved? Oh, though? all that junk. No. <laughs> it was like all of it. It was kind of ridiculous. And so... And it's just awkward. I mean, it's just an awkward thing. I mean, you're... Yeah, let me just commercial break on this for a yeah. minute. <laughs> please, so please. So what, what, <laughs> what ended up happening was, I'll never forget this. So I don't have any friends, and all these other kids that are there, like with their youth groups or with their friends from school, really is what it was. Yeah. So it was all their friends from school, sports teams, all that stuff. And I'm the, I'm the loner. And, and so I get hooked up with the two other kids that don't have any friends either. <laughs> and... One of them, I think, had special needs, which isn't a bad thing, but, you know, had special needs. And the other guy was just, he was just weird. He was just a weirdo. So you're in good company, dude. And then, and then, and then we're the only ones who end up with the adult supervisor walking around the beach. And they, and Campus Crusade at that time had these tracks, the four spiritual laws, right? Yeah. And they'd have these these surveys that weren't they were surveys but they were really just bait and switch material to be able to get people into a conversation yeah nobody ever paid attention to anything that the surveys ever said yeah. you know <laughs> so it was just awkward so you're walking around the beach with a guy with special needs with a weirdo and the adult who never got married and is you know like had you know really limited ability to be able to talk to people anyways and trying to do these surveys and open up the track, you know? Just out representing Jesus, brother. Well, and people you know? are at the beach, dude. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. they're hanging out with their kids. They're, you know, hanging out with their girlfriends or their boyfriends. There's all these chicks in bathing suits. And, yeah. You know, so it's like... How old were you at this point? 14. Okay. <laughs> it was the summer before my freshman year of high school. Yeah. So awkward, still trying to figure it out, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, I mean, I, was, I like to think I was pretty mature for my age, but... It's just really funny because you're walking up to people laying on the beach tanning going, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? Right. It's just like I've always, just looking back, I've always compared it to like just walking up to a random person and wanting to tell them everything about your mom, mm. why your mom's important, what your mom likes to eat. Yeah. Like those are just conversations you don't have randomly. Yeah. It's just yeah. We, it's weird. So anyways, uh, after that whole experience, I was over it. I was like, I'm not doing this junk again. So I ditched most of the sessions. Right. And then they had a guy who was, um, we were staying at the dorms at Biola. And then a guy who was circulating, making sure that nobody was ditching. So it made me go to the, to the main thing. And there was this guy talking and I mean, his message was just powerful. It was just one of those, mm. you know, iconic early nineties, you know, somebody who really knew how to hit a home run and really reach kids. Yeah. And he, um, I just couldn't handle it. I had to get out of there. Yeah. And I left in the middle of his talk and I was so like overwhelmed. And mm. I just remember feeling this pressure of wondering if anything that the stuff that they're saying is legit. Mm. Is it true? Is it real? Mm. You know? And I just, 
buried my face in the lawn next to Sutherland Hall and uh, heard God talk to me. Mm. And he told me to lift up my head up, scream as loud as I could. I did that, and it was like all of this emotion, all the mm. stuff that I think had been dormant in my life really came to the surface. And then you kind of come to you, and you're like, what the hell was that? Like, yeah. God talking to me? That's crazy. Nobody's going to believe me. You know, I'm not going right. to, this is weird. Yeah. Am, I, am I losing it? Yeah. And so I went back to the dorm, went to sleep, whatever, tried to forget the whole thing. And then the, the night before the conference was over, the guy was doing a talk again. It was like the last night. You know, they do the altar call. You, right. can, you know yeah. that junk's coming. Yeah. Um, but he did. And kids got up and went and sit up at the front to commit their lives to Jesus. And I'm just, I could, that tug was happening. But I was mm. feeling like, you know, it was making me angry almost. Right. And, uh, and then he made this comment. He said, so everybody's sitting down. You're all Christians. And so... Because if you're not, you'd be standing up here. And so what we're going to do is, is we're going to pray for the people who have made a commitment to Jesus up here. And I'm thinking, I can't even pray for myself. I'm mm. not going to start praying for somebody else. Yeah. And so I got up with the intention to leave the hall through the door that I went through the night before. And between the time I got up and the time I tried to get to the door, I just the spirit grabbed me, dude. Mm. And I ended up following that crowd through the door and in this counseling room started pouring my heart out to a guy I didn't even know mm. and I prayed the prayer and me and Jesus made a deal and the mm. deal was um, I grew up in a pretty um, I don't know pretty urban environment and I always associated you know Christianity with with wealth Hmm. and with um, with intelligence on some level, you know, because I was always, it was always white people who were smarter than me yeah. <laughs> and knew things that I didn't know, you know? And so whether it was pulling the, the address of a scripture and then quoting it yeah. or talking about things like missional stuff, they all these people went all over the world. And yeah. I didn't have any of that, yeah. you know? And so just being in California was a big deal for me at the time. Yeah. So, um Really, I the deal that I made with Jesus was, look, I'll represent you, and I'll tell everybody about you, but you've got to give me the ability to be able to articulate what you put in my heart in a mm. way that makes sense to everyone, to everyone that I meet. Yeah, I don't want to to live a blind faith. I want to I want to know what I'm talking about. And this is know? a 14. Yeah, 14. The, so that just and just to interject there, being a youth pastor for the years that I have been there. I have so many kids that would ditch on stuff and leave yeah. and go do all, everything. And it, it's interesting to me when you dig beneath the surface with those students, those are the ones that are really actually being the most cultivated, that the seeds are being planted really deep. And yeah. I didn't get that for the first few years of doing youth ministry. And I was the most yeah. hard on those kids, you know, but it's like hearing that and even a stereotypical conference, here you are altar call. I mean, yeah being a you know in a pastor now or whatever yeah. it's like you just look at that stuff you're like that stuff doesn't work but then you look at people like you mm-hmm. and that stuff begins to happen and at 14 you're making a commitment that actually is still following you through to this day well and the thing yeah. is is that what what made it so unbelievable and extraordinary was what happened immediately after hmm. um i started going to these conferences um that Campus Crusade would put on for high school kids, and um, I went to and just started learning. I couldn't afford to to buy the books in the bookstore that they'd set up in the hotel or whatever, and so I just sit in the in the in their bookstore and just read as much as I could. Um, and and that same year, my freshman year, they the guys that the, the missionary guys that were working with me, they would come to my campus. They drive 45 minutes. Um, to come and to meet with me once a week after school and just disciple mm. me. And they told me about this, this missions trip to, um, to Russia. And I just felt like God really wanted me to go. Mm. And it was 2,600 bucks. Wow. And I was poor, obviously. My parents didn't have money for that stuff. Um, I wasn't really the best kid at that stage in my life. So it's not yeah. like I could really rally a lot of support. But what ended up happening was 
Um, matter of fact, I fill out the application. I didn't have all the right scripture references in my answers. <laughs> so the guys who discipled me, um, Dave Pritchett, um, <laughs> they took the application off the lady's desk, off the director's desk. Yeah brought it back to me and sat with me and helped me redo all my responses. Really? We turned it back in. They accepted me. So I got a chance to go, but I needed the money. I was going to go for free. Right. Two weeks before I was supposed to go to my briefing, I had only had $200 in from my Mormon grandma who thought it was a good thing for me to do. (laughs) Um, Get me out of trouble, you know? Yeah. Um, Had no money. And I asked the pastor of the church that my parents went to if I could... um, if I could talk and during the sharing time of the service and he was like yeah he said but I'm gonna give you 60 seconds and if you go over I'm just gonna politely interrupt you hmm. I have no idea what I said but I think God just anointed it because in between services I got over $1,900 in cash and the rest of the money later that week in checks Wow I went to Russia in 1992 in April um, just right after the Iron Curtain fell hmm. and we spoke in high schools and in, um, in colleges in Russia, in Moscow. I saw literally 10,000 kids with my own eyes, watched it, commit their lives to Jesus. Hmm. And it was the first time I had, I didn't even know where Russia was. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, it was the first international experience I had. I got to see Jesus in a powerful way. Hmm. And it, it just radically changed me. I saw that the world is a much bigger place, Hmm. that people, humanity responds to Jesus in ways we don't expect. Um, I went to Brazil the following year. My junior year, I ended up um, starting a 501c3 organization for during the whole Equal Access Act thing. Hmm. Um, It was the whole Christian club movement. Um, I pioneered some of that stuff. All because of things that I had learned in my discipleship with Campus Crusade. See you at the pole. All right. that kind of, I was that kid yeah. who stood at the pole by himself. Really? And um, and God just honored all that junk. And my senior year is when I got involved in music and um, more on the, the ministry side of music. Yeah. It was, you know, 90s. And so it was that precursor when Christian music was really starting to grow and do some things. That's when I met the guys from POD and started working at the label and doing that whole thing yeah. and tooth and nail came out of that and you know yeah. around that time and and my first youth pastor job i was 18. <laughs> the oldest kid in my program was my age it was weird yeah um he was still in high school but i had graduated so it it just evolved into you know these larger than life experiences yeah where you're able to see the big picture and I don't think I've ever really thought about this before, but a lot of that um, engaging the culture that people don't expect, you know, for Christians, places that people don't expect Christians to be, really came out of a lot of that youth pastor time in my life. Mm -hmm. You're always getting fired from churches for doing stuff that old people don't understand. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then, and that was the time when tattoos and piercings and plugs and all that stuff really started to peek through. Yeah. people started to realize, hey, we shouldn't judge a book by its cover. I think POD was really influential in some of that, honestly. Yeah. Because um, we'd go to venues, we'd go to bars, we'd go do all that stuff and just represent. Mm. And all of those kids that committed their lives to Jesus during that season of those early years all grow up, get married, and have kids of their own and need a place to go. Mm. They need a place to belong. And... All your kids, as a youth pastor, they start growing up. Yeah. You know? And so either you stay in that space or you grow with them. Mm. And that's what happened to me. I, I just grew with the people that I was reaching. Before, before I'd say the mid-80s or late-80s, It being a youth guy, you were an associate pastor and then you did youth too, mm. right? That's right. how it worked. And so it wasn't until the 90s and I think, you know, late 80s, early 90s when that started to change. So um, just knowing that history is important. So what ended up happening for me was it was more of like, you know, I'm tired of getting fired for reasons that nobody's even really telling me. It's not like I got fired from a lot of jobs. It was just more of like, well, we're going to move in a different direction. (laughs) 
but then they but then <laughs> but then they try to communicate to the rest of the community that it was your decision <laughs> it wasn't your decision yeah, they just yeah. asked you not to work there anymore yeah. <laughs> you know that's really what happened and and churches are really good i think christians are really good about um at least the culture of, of my tribe is really good about opening up doors of opportunity i mean they welcome you with hugs and love and all whatever but on your way in but on your way out I mean, you really do get the boot. There's no severance. There's no, like, any of that kind of stuff. That's, those things are limited. Yeah. Um, so it was all that junk. And so what ended up happening was one of the, the board members from um, the parachurch that I started when I was 16, um, I'd been a part of some, some church plants in a support role, um, told me about a, a movement that was happening, a campaign that was happening um, here in San Diego um, through NAM. And all 50,000 churches in my tribe are all, you know, contributing substantial amounts of resources to one city every five years. Mm-hmm. And San Diego was going to be the next city. And he really felt like I would be a good fit for one of those plants. I'm from San Diego. This is my home. I know the culture. I'm indigenous. And, you know, some of the expenses involved in trying to ha- help guys transition wouldn't be an issue for me. Yeah. Um, I could hit the ground running and do really well. I'm yeah. very innovative. I'm entrepreneurial. I'm articulate. I was licensed and ordained, all that stuff. So um, it just seemed like a good fit. Well, sure enough, it ended up being a really great fit. Hmm. And I I went through all the assessments and took this assessment that um, put me in the top one percentile of successful church planters in the country. Wow. And... So then all of a sudden I found myself a part of this, you know, movement where all these guys were coming to San Diego to start churches and me and uh, just a, maybe a few other guys were really the cream of the crop, you know, had the right profile and the right skill set and the right calling yeah. to really do it and do it well. Yeah. Um, there was a fundraising part of that. So I was really good at raising money. I did the right partnerships. Yeah. And um, it all just kind of came together. Our community... This was like, <clears throat> you know, 2006. Yeah. Um, grew really fast, had a lot of support. I went and planted in an environment that was a total contrast from where everybody else was planting. I planted in the inner city where nobody else wanted to plant, <laughs> um, where there wasn't a lot of parking, where some of the logistic, you know, prerequisites or requirements didn't really fit. Yeah. Um, Everybody thought I was crazy and didn't think it was going to work. The median income wasn't right. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, none of it. It was very intercultural. It was very, like, all kinds of stuff. Everybody else was planting in environments where, you know, the median income was one hundred and fifty to 300000 a year, and people owned multimillion-dollar homes and, you know, all that junk. Um, but And here you are, downtown. Here, yeah, you know. in the heart of it all. Yeah. And so it's where I grew up, you know, yeah. so it was, it was a good fit for me. I understood the culture. So... Uh, yeah, it, it just really started to take off. And um, then you get swept up in that. You walk into a room and your presence just changes the climate. Yeah. And it does. It feeds your ego. Um, it makes you feel accomplished and good. I felt proud. I felt yeah. confident that finally I had found found my space. I was at the sweet spot is what I call it. Yeah. Finally, I'd spent my entire you know ministry life trying to to get somebody to kick me the ball mm-hmm. and here I was, they were kicking me the ball. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it was amazing. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. And um, you know, there people that were showing up to my church weren't Christians. Because what happens is this is what happens with typical church whether it's a church plan or a church. There's a, there's an assumption that's made right from the very beginning before anybody steps in your door. The assumption is, is that everybody who's going to sit in the seats that are in, that are in the front of your stage, we automatically assume that they're believers, mm. that they think and understand scripture and biblical history and Jesus's role and responsibility to humanity and even into their own personal lives in the same way that we do. Yeah. And in my environment, I had to assume the opposite. Yeah. I had Ephesians chapter four type stuff like, you know, they drag Paul into the, you know, into the arena and they're about to kill him and they let him talk. And the Bible says that his, his speech was so compelling that not only did they not kill Paul, 
but most committed their lives to Jesus, and then they went and burnt down the the library in Ephesus just up the road. Yeah. And it's that transformation mm-hmm. of restoring people from hostile fans to loyal believers. Yeah. It's that transition. It's yeah. a it's a it's like it's almost like I call it the spark of recognition. It's that point when when fire becomes fire. Yeah. The spirit's in it and there's no doubt that that's what it is. It isn't based on your on your strengths or your abilities. It's not something that you could control, that you could influence. It's something that God does in that moment because that's a part of what he's doing and you're just a part of it. Yeah. Um, and so we would assume, hey, you know what? People show up. We have to explain things because in church we use a language. Yeah. And that language is very exclusive. I mean, in the early days it was words like fellowship. Yeah. And we're going to pray. Prayer is like a savor thing. People don't, in church, it's so funny to me because in church, like even in the order of your service and the schedule of your services typically, people are just using prayer as a savor line because they don't know what else to do. So, okay, let's just pray. You know, it's not even intentional. Um, it doesn't fit. It's like, okay, we just took the time. We should probably pray. You know, it's that sort of thing. And it's systematic theology sort of totally, prayer, right? It's like, you know. Totally. And then they get people get poetic and whatever. But, yeah. <laughs> so it just loses its authenticity on some level, you know? Sure. And we just, you know, people were coming to my community because they were trying to figure out what the heck was you know this you know this church that was moving into their neighborhood yeah and so and you were with mosaic right yeah so, so. Here, here's kind of how my partnerships worked um when we first started it was it was mosaic san diego yeah um but that was at a time in mosaic's history when and and growth when there were a lot of guys coming from all over the country that wanted to be mosaic Mm-hmm. that wanted to, to be a part of Mosaic because some of the things that, that Irvin was communicating were, were really resonated yeah. for people. And so who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's hip, it's cool. I mean, and it's... Sure. It's Irvin that, McManus has an a, a, a electric vibe about for him. For sure. You know, so for I mean. sure. And, and I think, too, um, you know, that's what happened to me. I mean, I, I read one of Irwin's books and it was really, it resonated with me on such a deep level. I finally felt like I wasn't a square peg fitting in a round hole mm-hmm. that that there was a place for me, mm-hmm. you know? I, it, it was my tribe. Yeah. And so um, when what happened was, um, so we're Mosaic San Diego already, but that was kind of without the blessing of, of Mosaic LA. Mm-hmm. So at that time, there were a few, a few uh, communities in different parts of Southern California that were actual Mosaic, connected to Mosaic LA. But they had um, created a paradigm um, for other communities that could adopt you know, different degrees of, of, of their strategy or philosophy or core values mm. and become an alliance um, member is mm. what they called it. So there was Mosaic Mosaic and then there was Mosaic Alliance. Okay. So I met with Eric Bryant um, who was on staff at the time and was kind of the, I, I don't know if he was exactly the executive pastor or what his official role was, but he was the nuts and bolts of Mosaic. And um, we met and we talked and it became very clear and apparent to me that um, I didn't want them to think or to get the idea that we were like any of those other other folks trying to clamor for their attention mm. and their resources and their help. Um, that we had the capacity in, in our leadership and with the people that I was pulling together, remnants of POD shows, really, yeah. <laughs> um, that we had the capacity to, to offer just as much, if not more, to what Mosaic represented. Mm. And, and really, some of that's cultural because San Diego, we don't like L.A., Straight up. I mean, that's just all there is to it. Right. We're not Dodger fans. We're Padre fans, you know? So there's this interesting, like, kind of relationship between San Diego and L.A. So my thing was like, look, if you guys have an issue, I'm not going to... And it wasn't that that Mosaic had an issue. They didn't have an issue at all. But my thing was I didn't want to create, like, this perception that I thought wasn't wasn't authentic and original. Yeah. I didn't want to be... You wanted it to be San Diego. And I didn't want to be a copycat. Yeah. You know, I wasn't trying to copycat or replicate what they were doing in L.A. Copy, paste, copy, paste. But, but the truth was when I would travel and do these other conferences in the Southern Baptist world, this dialogue would happen with speakers and with other people or in small groups or in meetings. 
and me and the mosaic guys would always end up speaking the same language and we'd find each other from across the room and then it was right. like all of a sudden we're eating lunch and it's like okay well i'm eating with those guys because yeah it was tribal yeah and and so it just made sense and so what we did was for the interim the agreement that i made with eric was that i would change the name for the time being and two you have to consider there's some intentionality out of that too on some level i found out to start a mosaic nobody was going to help us financially to do that mm. you know it had to be original and it had to be authentic and all that stuff so we would change the name and we'd do the name um called it ethos that's where we get the word ethics from mm. and really roots itself in the idea of friendship and those things and then what we would do is over time as we you know cultivated a deeper relationship with mosaic la and got to know them better yeah um and built the foundation that you know we would talk about what it would look like for us to to become you know mosaic san diego again yeah let's just see how it goes right let's right. take baby steps so that's what we did and um, things started to grow really fast and we started participating in some things with them. We'd go to their leadership advances and their guys would come down and speak for me. And, you know, it was just, it made sense. It just yeah. really made sense. And, uh, yeah, there's just a lot that really made sense. It, it, there were so many common denominators between LA culture and San Diego culture, especially in the creative realm. I had worked in music. I had had some exposure to art, um, you know, and those kinds of things. And so it just, it just, it was culturally, Mosaic became a, Mosaic became a cultural partner for us, Mosaic LA. Um, and then I think that pursuit of originality and I think trying to do things different and build on what Irwin had created um, transformed into something totally different and just radically changed my life mm. and there was no going back from that point you know yeah. yeah so i i got stuck in this jet stream i think of just being innovative and doing things differently i was really i wanted my experiences on sundays to be things that people would remember yeah um, through the course of a week I wanted them to be things that were relevant and all this stuff like really coincides with Mosaic's core values. Um, and as I was trying to, you know, I think flesh that stuff out, um, we started, I, I didn't want to do the cookie cutter, you know, video bumpers from Oklahoma <laughs> or, you know, the, you know, let's get a, you know, some, you know, let's do the Rob Bell Numa thing at the time when he was still yeah, yeah. liked and people still, you know, I think appreciated him. Um, Which they still do. I'll interject to some. You know? some I mean, whatever. I mean, like me. You know? <laughs> so I think I think some of that is just more of like, okay, you know what? I And Irwin even said this. I'll give Irwin some credit here. Um, we had an we had an interaction one day, um, our people in, in Mosaic LA and um, Irwin had just got off a plane and um, he was tired. I think he was worn out. Um, and he was just being faithful and, you know, having this small engagement with people who had taken the trip to come to L.A. and, and be and hear from him. You know, it was a small group of people mm -hmm. um, just before a bigger, a bigger thing. And he was talking about um, Ecclesiastes. And he was talking about... Um, Ecclesiastes chapter three, it talks about there's nothing new under the sun. It's kind of like a pre, you know, right, a right. thing, right? And he had illuminated this idea that that may not necessarily be theologically sound. Hmm. And because if we are made in the image of God, this is his logic. If we're made in the image of God and God's a creator, then that's something that we borrow from God's DNA that we can create too. Yeah. And so there is something new under the sun. Hmm. And so what he did was he was trying to challenge the people in the room, all pastors and people in leadership, to really look at, at the word and be able to discern and maybe even divorce the author's personal opinions and emotions in the moment hmm. from theology. Hmm. Now, my team, <laughs> you know, we don't just take things for granted. We didn't. And so, you know, kind of perked up some things. And one of the gals, a part of my team, she had a Southern accent. And so I think there were some assumptions on both sides. Mm. 
she she I think she assumed that what he was saying wasn't um, wasn't on point with you know traditional evangelical theology. Right. I think he assumed that just because she had a southern accent that she was you know not a part of the program. Right. And so she he had had just before she had spoken up he had made a statement that you know sometimes he talks to people from the traditional you know situation and they you know sometimes it's the spirit of how they ask that makes him not want to respond and they even question what he believes Mm. well her response was kind of reactionary and she goes well what do you believe he's tired (laughs) he just got off a plane yeah her voice is southern so it was one of those situations. I could hear it in my head, yeah, totally. Dude. <laughs> and so he just like got on guard, and all of a sudden it was this this really intense moment happened. Yeah. And everybody is Eric and I are just looking at each other like, okay, this is gonna be interesting, right? Because yeah. Eric knows Irwin really deep, and I know my people really good, and so it's just kind of like, what do we do with this? <laughs> and so, um, <clears throat> and then other people tried to chime. Well, and then you know, it's imme- yeah. immediately it's an inerrant oh, it's Bible inerrant conversation, totally, you know, totally. And so. One of my other, one of the other people on my leadership team, felt like she needed to defend her friend, mm. and then other guys that are from places like Indiana or wherever it is, or Tennessee, wherever they're from, trying to do a mosaic I, there, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey guys, I, I feel that, kinda, you know, <laughs> that whole thing. I understand what you're saying, but you know, so it just created this tense moment. We were able to work through it and, and handle it and whatever. Yeah. So, all that to say, it was those kinds of things that I think were really on the forefront of what. Mosaic was doing at the time mm. and so and it was very conducive to LA culture right or Southern California culture uh, and so for me I just I, I really felt like I don't want to use these cookie cutter things I don't even want to use most of Irwin's stuff we'll try it out like yeah it was okay but if if everything that Irwin said was true in that conversation then the same is true for me as a leader and as a pastor. Totally. And I, I'm not the starstruck dude. Like, I had never been in a situation where I felt like, and all the famous people I've met when I was younger as a youth guy, I mean, everybody from Wu-Tang Clan to, I mean, you name it. Like, yeah. um, you know, all these Hollywood people, like, they're real people. Yeah. You know? And so I didn't see myself any different than these people. They're, they're human. Yeah. And so if, if being a pastor and being a leader of leaders is something that's in my DNA, then why can't we create the things that they're creating for their people, for our people? Yeah. So wait a minute. Writing a book was a huge proposition at the time. There was a lot going on. I thought, you know what? Film works. So I started with film. Hmm. So I started... Um, I hired a guy who um, was a shooter editor for me. He was a part of my ministry, the campus ministry I, was, I had in high school. And we we started with, you know, some social justice issues. I started with poverty. Actually, I started with friendship. Yeah. Because we planted our church in the middle of the, you know, of a gay and lesbian community in San Diego. Um, and that wasn't popular. <laughs> so, um and that's when the transgender culture, you know, really started to peek through. We had a first brush with it. Yeah. Somebody in our community, their, their, um, one of their parents was transgender. Mm. And so it really opened up Pandora's box for all these questions of like, how is the church going to respond to this? Now you have to bear in mind, this is before Caitlyn Jenner and before any of that. Yeah. This is before LGBTQIA, whatever it is. Right, right, like, yeah. It was before what, any of what that. What year are you talking about? This yeah. is 2008. Yeah. This is 2008. And so instead of just adopting what the home mother church with right. celebrity pastor is right. doing right you're taking it at face value because you're a creative mm-hmm. and really doing something that is that your people's your team around you putting mm-hmm. everybody and saying hey your input is actually your creative input is more valuable yeah. than just maybe hold, handing out a program like right. let's get together and right. make and something it, that's going to impact this community yeah. and give this community voice and value and leading well and it's something that resonated with the community in the culture of the people where we lived, number one. Right. It was also hidden. It was something that resonated with the hidden demographic in other places, too. The stuff that nobody was talking about, shine it. Let's talk about it. That's what this is all about. Yeah. And ironically, I was doing the very thing that I was trained and equipped to do. Mm. The thing that really that Mosaic had encouraged in me and all of those 
you know, leadership engagements and, and meetings and even the speaking engagements we did together, all the catalyst rhetoric. Yeah. It was all yeah. the stuff they were telling us to do, I started to do. Yeah. And and that was celebrated and supported by my tribe. Mm. Southern Baptist culture was all about it. Yeah. So all of a sudden I start moving that direction. I do this whole thing on friendship and the contrast of it. And I start interviewing people in the community. Yeah. And and we show I split I split it into four segments, each segment dealing with a contrasting view of friendship. And friendship was the basis of that whole ethos vision. So we did that, people started to show up. Yeah. So it's like because people it makes sense, right? right? It makes sense. It's a desire that these people Um, have. So we addressed all these different things and and out of each one of those segments a different biography kind of emerged out of it. Mm -hmm. And one of them was a a female to male transgender. You get to know Connor, you learn you learn about, you know, story and there's all these common denominators of how you as the listener and the viewer connects with him and things that make sense and that you share. Mm. And then somehow in the middle of all that, you go, he says that he used to be a woman and had three kids and now he's a man. And you're like, mm. oh, heck, where did that come from? Right, right. So it catches people by surprise. And But after you're connected to him. Right. Right. You, you see a humanity side totally. of it. Totally. You know? And... And then we interviewed a 21-year-old pregnant prostitute mm. who, you know, worked near the street where we were at, um, where our, our church was. And, and then there, were, there was a guy dying of full-blown AIDS. Mm. Um, and so just hearing their stories and talking about, okay, what's our responsibility to friendship, first as a Christian, and then second as, as someone who cares about humanity, right? Yeah. The greatest... Jesus says that the, there's no greater love than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. Mm. So what does that mean? Right. No other greater love? Right. Maybe we need to emulate that. So mm. that film thing worked out. We did really well. The next one I did, I did one. I kept showing up to my office and I'd see all these. In Southern California, there's there's a lot of homeless folks because it's just easier to be homeless in in on the beach than it is in Detroit. It's know? January and we're sitting outside right now yeah, in t-shirts. Right? So. <laughs> so no wonder people are here. But what happened is the, the city had this ordinance where just before a major event at the convention center or a baseball game, they would do these sweeps and they'd sweep all the homeless in our city and push them up into one community where they would be almost invisible. Mm. And they were literally on my doorstep. Mm. And as a new younger church, we didn't have the capacity to sustain any real ministry in that realm, but I felt like we needed to do something and make a difference. Yeah. So I partnered with a rescue mission and we ended up doing um, this whole campaign and it was really amazing. And, um, and I did the same thing. I did this, you know, curriculum. I turned it into small group curriculum for my, for my, for our life groups in our, in our community. Um, about the four different reasons why people are homeless. I sp- it was mm. a 30 minute short. It was split into five to seven minute segments each. Mm. Um, and so it was just enough that I could use it as bumpers on Sunday morning and then talk about poverty and talk about mm. how to engage um, you know, homeless in our community in a healthy and impactful way. Because that's what church should be doing. Am I right or wrong? I mean, I mean you know. think you would yeah. think that that would be the situation so I think um, it just evolved and so fast forward to May 2009 and I take my team to Catalyst and we uh, we link up with uh, some people there and um, I end up hearing this I think it was uh Ravi Zacharias's daughter talk about some human trafficking stuff mm. and then a light bulb went off it was like wait a minute that's what we just filmed yeah. in that thing we did last year mm. that's what they're calling it so I'm like wait a minute what's going on mm. and uh, and so I'm there and um, my my wife at the time was just like you really need to do something about this mm. and you really need to film it. And I, I looked at her, and I'll remember, I remember this clear as day, dude. Mm. And I said, are you sure? I said, I'm not going to do it without you. And she said, yeah, you've got to. So I walked out into the hall, called some people. 
um, that I knew had worked with some of something like that here in the um, in San Diego, and said, "Look, I want to do something with it, and let's do it." And so that's how that all came. Yeah. Fast forward, um, I started doing it, um, but really from a, like a from a distant view. Right. It was one issue that was one thing that I had to do on my on my desk. Um, and it was, it was for a future series, not for anything that was immediate. Yeah. And so I started learning more and um, found out about a professor who was doing some stuff at Point Loma Nazarene, um, found out some personal stuff. Um, we were going to adopt a baby at the time, and um, we were considering one child that had like some pretty severe special needs. And my parents had been... Um, cultivating relationship with um, with some family friends who their daughter had a baby and that baby had some real need and so they were th- considering it too so we could have done that like there were some options there yeah and um, I found out that that baby's mom was being was being put out was being trafficked by mm. guys that I was familiar with mm. and from from the hood yeah and so it it just all of a sudden, this thing that was so far, so distant, all of a sudden became very personal. Yeah. So I started to mine all that. I did a, a media conference in, in uh, I think it was September, with the International Mission Board and my friend Craig Martin. And uh, just shared some of the video work that I've done and how we're using that to impact, you know, culture. Yeah. And um, I was on a, a, a panel with um, a guy named Ralph Winter. Ralph was a producer for um, the X-Men, and he's also responsible for a really popular um, uh, organization called the 48-Hour Film Festival. Mm. And uh, he's got some some accolades behind him. Another guy named Phil Cook, who's kind of responsible for all the stuff that happens in, I think, Christian media. Yeah. And then there was me. And so we all were keynotes, and then we did a, a Q&A panel discussion after. And so I got a, sh- a chance to share my friendship one with... Yeah. transgender and all that kind of stuff and people looked at me like I was I was so far out in front they're just <laughs> like what the heck right and I remember it being such a distinctive thing and people just being so perplexed by how we were approaching it yeah and that we would actually again these are people that would come to church transgenders would come to my church right Buddhists would come to my church yeah and because we treated them like people it, that's just you know it's so weird to me that like you go to this thing and people think you're weird and doing something unique and different whenever you're actually doing the very thing that we were called to do. We're yeah. called to embrace the outsider and right. to, you know, that love covers a multitude of sins right. and all of these things and right. to see people as people. And so you're actually doing this thing and it's shocking people. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I didn't know that uh, actually loving people was a shocking thing. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times in Christian culture, it gets to be that way, even yeah. with a lot of the topics that are happening right now you know we won't mm-hmm. get into but just yeah. the, you know different refugee things and stuff and so i think for sure for with you it's been cool to hear how you've just had such an open heart through all of this and you and i'd like to do another podcast sometime yeah. really focusing in on that human trafficking social justice part yeah, of sure. what you do um but i think just in wrapping up and maybe <laughs> i don't know if this is going to be wrapping up or not sure. we'll try to move that direction you know but really just, so things come to a head and your whole goal with all of this is that people are restored. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's the word, since I met you, mm-hmm. is a constant word, is you wanna bring people into restoration. For sure. And then so, you know, this might have to be a part two or whatever, but uh, you end up going in through a season to where you need restoration and, sure. and wholeness and, and hope through all of this, through a series of events and so, you know, maybe we want to get into that now or not. I'm not yeah, sure. I'll just cut to the chase. Um, I think, I think it, it, what ended up happening was in the beginning, all of that leads up to, even though it's distinctive and it's out of the box to a certain demographic, it's super attractional and everybody wants to be connected to it. Yeah. So now all of a sudden I'm on this path towards, you know, being that celebrity guy. Right. Yeah. And, and then tragedy hits in December, 2009, my brother-in-law died. He OD'd in my in our living room, mm. and uh, and it just we just didn't recover from that. Mm. And what ended up happening was, um, 
we ended up in a situation where my wife just felt like it wasn't um, it wasn't a life that she wanted to live anymore and mm. decided to step outside of that. You know, she decided to kind of step out of the relationship and engage in a different one mm. while we were married and um, just kind of left this, this seed behind that she was uncomfortable with the human trafficking work that I was doing at the time. And ironically, it wasn't even intense at that time. It was actually pretty lax, you know, <laughs> um, in comparison to the stuff that I've done since. So in order to, to kind of avoid letting my community get sucked into the toxicity of our circumstances, um, I handed it off and left. Mm. And not thinking that the response would be what it was. Literally overnight, I was jobless, homeless, penniless, and nobody would talk to me. Mm. And, and I didn't even know why. It took me quite some time to, to learn, and there are all kinds of different rumors and rabbit trails and all kinds of junk, but, you know, it, it was devastating. Yeah. Me. Yeah. The guy who'd been hardcore, consistent, vocal. Yeah. Since the day I met Jesus. Right, right. And my life was, the canon of my life had told that story from day one. Hmm. But the tribe that I found myself most connected to didn't, couldn't see the canon of my life, hmm. the, the longer picture. They only saw what was happening in the moment. Hmm. And people usually do one or two things when, when conflict or controversy happens. When things get messy, they either polarize or everybody runs away. It's one of the two. Hmm. And I'm not a runner. I'm a confronter. Hmm. And... You know, some people t encourage me to move on and get remarried and maybe move to a different place and mm -hmm. you know, start over. I, I don't, I didn't think that that was honest. I didn't think it was in integral. Yeah. And, um, and so I stayed. Yeah. And so essentially what happened was I, I, in, uh, in 2010, I just felt like I was wearing a scarlet letter mm. and I got angry. And I felt like if I'm going to wear a scarlet letter, shine it. I'm going to wear it out loud. Yeah. And so when I had put down all the anti-trafficking stuff, that was all that was in front of me. That was the only thing that was in my face. And that was the excuse that was, I think, being used for my transition. Mm. So I decided to pick back up the mantle and head in, in, into the face of opposition at full force. And that's exactly what I did. I made a lot of mistakes. I think I, I took risks that I never imagined that I would take. Yeah. That didn't just hurt me, but it hurt the people around me. Some hard stuff, man. Yeah. Um, all in the pursuit of redemption. And I felt like, you know what? If I get into this underworld of human trafficking, if I show people what's really here, because again, this is before the term was even being used. Nobody even knew what it was. Yeah. Um, then that'll offer some redemption for me. Mm -hmm. Then people, well, once people know, then, then everything's going to be okay and I can get my life back. Right, right. And it just didn't unfold that way. So you were trying to fill that totally. with it. Totally. You know, with, totally. With that endeavor that you're doing there. And so totally. I, I think what resonates with a lot of people is kind of that, in a sense, you were shunned from your own people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that there's a lot of people that I've talked to, even people that I know that listen to this podcast so far. Yeah. And, and that's their story. They've, yeah. They went through a cir circumstance, mm -hmm. a situation, and overnight they're alienated. Yeah. And overnight they're the outsider. And mm -hmm. it seems like, you know, like, like their name has been erased from people's minds. Mm -hmm. And they become, you know, the topic of what it means to be, you know, a uh, um, basically, you know, they become the hot topic at the small group. Right. You know, of right, what right. Not, they become the poster child of yeah. what not to be. And, you know, people... People are people, and we're really harsh and actually really mean uh, whenever it comes to a lot of these things. And I think it's a really unfortunate piece about church, and I think it's the dark side. I think yeah. it's the, the hidden side of church that a, more and more people today, with the backlash of the mega church and celebrity yeah. culture, mm -hmm. I think th these sort of conversations and what you experienced is becoming more of a norm story, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, see, it was interesting because... For so long, everybody wants to be around me. Everybody wants to talk to me. Everybody wants to get a glimpse of what we're doing. Cause everybody wants dude. to be because yeah, because you're you're the flavor of the month. You know what I mean? And yeah. then all of a sudden, when when things get messy, mm. instead of 
My response was this. The biblical response is, is exactly what happens in Acts 17.11. The Bible says that the Bereans were more noble character than the Thessalonians because they checked to see if what Paul was saying was true. Mm. And instead of doing that, people in leadership decided to rush to judgment mm. and take the easy route. Here's another thing I'll give Irwin credit for. He said something that has really stuck with me through this whole time. He said, don't ever underestimate the secret conversations that God has with people. Hmm. I'm not the artificial Christian. I'm not the counterfeit one. I'm not the copycat. I'm not, um, I'm not perfect. I'm definitely, um, you know, filled with flaws and, and, and weaknesses just like everybody else. But I'm also not a quitter. Mm. I'm the real Christian. I have a real relationship with God, and that mm. doesn't go away. Mm. And it's not dependent um, on people's interpretations of my story. Mm. And so I think what's important is, is to be honest and to be transparent. Uh, and, and really, you know, if you're going to, I think some of this, in some, some, in some circumstances, choice, some decisions we make are choices, right? Um, some stories we chase and other stories find us. Hmm. Um, some decisions we have to make are about call. We have to be called to those spaces and others we just have to choose. Hmm. And my experience and my journey has been, I think, a collaboration of those two things. It has been both a call and a choice. Hmm. And I've got to take responsibility for that. I think uh, I am so thankful for Mosaic taking responsibility for my community. Hmm. Um, there are some aspects of the narrative that probably affect me in ways that I just really need to turn over to Jesus. Hmm. Um, what's important, I think, is for people to know that all of, of us that end up in that space where, you know, one stage you're you're the celebrated and the next year the shunned right that there is something to be said for the the distance between honor and disgrace hmm. that's a long hard fall hmm. and ironically the restoration part is really the entire point of God's gift to humanity through Jesus mm-hmm it's not that just that we would be reconciled to God. It's not just that our sin would be redeemed. It's that the relationship between us and Him would be restored to its originality. Yeah. It'd be restored to those moments where we can literally walk with Jesus every day in the morning, like Enoch, like Adam, mm. that we could do those things. Like Elijah, we could do that stuff. Mm. Um, there are chapters in my story that are still being written yeah. and they're not done yet. Um, and so I think even with Mosaic, my connection to Mosaic is uh, virtually non-existent at this point, but the whole you know, philosophy of Mosaic is that God can take broken things, the shattered things in our lives and make them brand new again. Hmm. That's what restoration is. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Right. So, uh, yeah, God has a funny way of working things out for his benefit, whether we can see it or not. And it's know? sooner or later, too, mm -hmm. you know, because it's been a definitely a little bit of a road for you. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I just met you this past year in 16, yeah. but, yeah. you know, from talking to you and hanging out, it's been... It's been some years, you know, this pro and seven. a continual. It's seven this year. Mm. This will be the seventh year. And I, and I feel like I'm just at that place where I'm, I'm starting to get past a lot of the, the turmoil and, and, and gone through my stages of grieving. Yeah. Uh, and God's creating new things again. Yeah. That hope is, it, although hope has always been there for me, I think it, it's at a place now where it can really grow. Mm. And, and thrive. And so I'm really encouraged by that. The great part about it is being on this side of the fence is pastors and people in leadership, we always get stuck in that space where we feel like we have to placate. Mm. You know, we have to polarize one direction or another so we can keep our job. <laughs> and now I don't have to do that. Right, yeah. You know, I can say what I want, when I want. Yeah. And, uh, and just really 
you know, be, be authentic in its greatest space. And I think until the church as a whole gets to that place, it's going to be a lot harder for us to be able to allow God to use us to facilitate or chaperone restoring humanity back to a relationship with him. Yeah. And that's really my goal is I think that the quicker that we can move in that direction, the quicker we're going to see amazing things begin to unfold and begin to happen, you know? Like the world the world respects the world respects authenticity. It does. Just be you. Yeah. Do you. Yeah. And and God will will do the rest, you know? And he pulls the pieces together and makes all things mm-hmm. new and beautiful and and restored to their right space so jason dude i appreciate your time and sure and being open and honest and real and uh jason's got a book that's going to be coming out pretty soon hopefully i'll uh (laughs) i'll throw some stuff on there about that so sweet and uh, we'll have you on again and talk some more about some human trafficking stuff yeah if you want to look at that the site is the most unlikely.org cool and uh there's some bits and pieces there a little bit about you know, the other part of my story and how that all fits. So, and I'll throw that in on the notes. So (laughs) the train, (laughs) the train is the perfect ending for this thing. Cool. Thanks Luke. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thank you.